0: be seated all right well we continue our sermon series on the Westminster Shorter Catechism and today we come to the question that introduces the second portion the second division of the whole catechism okay so that we've it has two basic divisions there's the, uh, the introduction, of course, and then there's the first part where, that we've just completed with question 38, where we're told about God, who he is, and about all his works, the things that he, he has done in creation and in providence, and primarily the things that he has done, the work of salvation that he has done. And uh, we saw all the benefits that we have from the, that work that he has done. Uh, that was what we've been looking at, of course, for the last number of weeks with justification, sanctification, adoption, and uh, all the other benefits that we looked at, the secondary benefits. And then we looked at the benefits that we have yet ahead of us uh, with the, um, our, our, uh, the intermediate state where when we die and go to be with the Lord if we die before he returns, and then at his return, that our bodies will be raised up and we will be in glory with him forever. That was very encouraging, that first part of the catechism. But the second part, which we begin today, tells us what God wants us to do, how he wants us to live. It gives us our duty. Now, I want to remind you of way back uh, question three that we looked at, because that's where These two sections of the Catechism were outlined for us initially with an introductory question to these two great sections of the Catechism. So it's question three is the question. And let's confess the answer to this question together after I ask it. Question three. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So you see the two divisions there. The questions four through 38 that we've been looking at, again, about what we believe in God. And then the rest of this series, we'll be looking at what God requires of man. Our question for this week, question 39, introduces this entire section about our duty to God. This is, of course, a very important matter. God Created us for himself, and it is of utmost importance for us to know what he wants of us. He did not leave us without knowledge of what his will is, what pleases him, and what he requires of us. He made us beings who can think and who can reason and who can act, and we are to use our minds and our bodies. To please God, to do what he has revealed that we ought to do. So let's confess what question 39 says about our duty. What is the duty which God requireth of man? The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. It's a pretty simple answer, isn't it? What is he revealed to us? We know that there are secret things that God has that he's not revealed. Like, I don't know who's going to be saved. I don't know what's going to happen in the year to come. I, there's many things that I don't know. God knows. That's his plan. That's his will. The things that are going to happen in the year to come. But the revealed will are the things that he has told us that he wants us to do. That are given to us. So our scripture reading that's related to this is... Micah 6, 1 through 8, where we're told what God requires of us, what he's revealed to us as far as how we're to live. So please give me your attention as I read this to you, because it is the holy word of God. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent you... I I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. May the Lord bless to us the hearing of his holy and infallible word. Before we look at what our duty is is revealed here, there are several things I want you to notice about the duty as it is presented to us here in the Catechism and in Micah, the portion that we just read. First, I want you to notice that it is a duty that is required, a duty required by God. You can see this in both the catechism and in the passage in Micah. The catechism says, what is the duty which God requireth of man? And in Micah 6, 8, it says essentially the same thing. What does the Lord require of you? Our duty then is a required duty. This ought to be obvious to you, but too often it is not obvious. We're talking about God here. We're talking about our Creator And of course, we are required to obey the one who made us. We are to live before him as our God. And our God is someone who directs us in how we should live our lives. If you're one of those people who thinks that serving God is just a matter of personal preference, then you are sorely mistaken. The God who made you has requirements of you and they are not optional. You are commanded, as one who is of the fallen human race, to repent and believe the gospel. It's not an option. It's a command. You are commanded to leave all and follow Christ. You are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, to remember the Sabbath, to worship God, In the way that he has said to worship him. To abstain from sexual immorality. To do your daily work. In an honest way. Absolute God-given requirements are the thing that the world hates most of all. They hate being told that God has things that he requires of them. If you're not a true Christian, you want everything to be optional. Serving God is okay, but only when you want and how you want. You resent any notion of Him telling you how to live your life. You say, it is my life, I can do whatever I want. What You, what you, you don't like Him saying what you can and cannot do and even things that you must do, that He tells you that you must do. But if you think this is all optional and up to you, you're going to have a rude awakening on the day of judgment. On that day, you will be jolted to reality that what God Almighty wants of his creatures is an absolute requirement. And you will be cast into eternal torment for ignoring it, no matter how nice a person you may think yourself to be. God Almighty is Lord of all, and he is to be obeyed. We are required to do what he says. But I wonder if you're alert here. There's a big problem with me saying this, isn't there? There's a big problem. And that is that we have all failed to do what God requires of us. So what is left for us? Obviously, we're required to do it. I hope you can see that. But what do we do? What's going to happen to us if we don't do what's required? Where does that leave us who have certainly come short of what he's required? Well, that brings us to the second thing that I want you to notice about our duty, both as it is presented to us in the catechism and also in Micah chapter 6. Second, I want you to see that our duty is a duty for sinners. It is a duty that God has now Put together for us is those who have fallen, fallen in a fallen condition. He doesn't give us a law that is for us in an unfallen condition, but as ruined sinners. Look at the context of Micah. What is the Lord doing in verses 1 through 5? In his mercy, he is issuing a complaint against his people. As the people that he has redeemed for himself. Notice it's redeemed people that he's talking to here. They have not been doing what is required of them. For this reason, the Lord is calling upon them to plead their case before the mountains and the hills as witnesses, as if the mountains and the hills are a courtroom that's evaluating how they have been conducting themselves. He is saying, What are you going to say before these mountains and hills uh, for yourself? How are you going to explain the way that you have been treating your God as if God is not a redeemer to you? As if there is no redemption in him and there is no, you, you can't come to him, you can't serve him, you can't walk with him. You're acting like you're not a redeemed people, like the people of the world. And it is then, after asking that, that Micah responds with the questions in verses 6 and 7. He says, what shall, this is 6, 6. He says, what shall I come, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These are questions that someone who has been stung with the reality that they have not done what God requires may ask. They are questions of desperation. What can I do? You remember when Peter showed the people in Acts 2 how that they had crucified their Messiah and they said men and brethren what shall we do what shall we do we're in a, a fix I have sinned against God Almighty what can I possibly do about this what can I bring to him to make up for it I can never do enough you see the the kind of list that he gives there you know 10,000 rivers of oil as a sacrifice. All these animals shall I bring, give my firstborn. You see, pagans do that. They've done that sometimes in history. They've given their own children to try to appease the gods that they know that they have offended. And it's this question that the Lord answers in verse 8. When in Micah it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good And what does the Lord require of you? That's very clear, isn't it? This is not talking about what is required of someone who is just created, who is innocent, who just came from God's hand and who has no sin. It's very clearly talking about someone who has greatly sinned. It's saying, what does he require of you? People like you that the hills and mountains testify have not served your god what does god require of his people as sinners and sinners who are still sinning and that's what the second half of the catechism talks about as well because it summarizes what is taught in the entire bible to sinners the bible is not written to innocent people but to us to people who have sinned against god to people who have rejected our creator and who have gone in their own way. Yes there is a bit about what God required of us when he first made us. And of course that requirement is still there. There's much about that. The unchanging moral law of God. But now there are additional requirements that he has given in his mercy that belong to us. As those who have transgressed. Those who have fallen in Adam. Those who have sinned against the most high God. Yes, we are still required, of course we are still required to obey all of God's moral commandments, to love Him. Of course we should love our God, to love our neighbors, ourselves. The moral law does not change. But as those who have sinned, we are also required to repent and believe the gospel. It's a command, isn't it? God commands all men everywhere to repent. We are called to believe all the things that we have seen about Jesus Christ and his saving work in the section of the catechism that we have just finished. Questions 1 through 38. We're to come to him, looking to him as our redeemer who has been revealed to us as the one who justifies, adopts, sanctifies, blesses his people with eternal life. We're to come to him as that kind of a God, the one who sent his son from heaven to come and redeem us. We are to receive his gospel. We are to receive his holy word. We are to partake of the sacraments. We are to pray. Those aren't things that were given to people when God first made them, when they had not sinned. They're things that are given to those who have sinned greatly. Our duty is no longer than just moral commandments. Not anymore. Our duty now includes all that God requires of us in our present condition as sinners. And if we have come to Christ as redeemed sinners in this fallen world, God knows our condition and he graciously presents his requirements for sinners. In his grace, he has given these requirements and shown us what to do as those who have transgressed. This is such a marvelous thing. It would have been perfectly right and just for him to... Just cut us off as those who had failed to meet requirements that he has for human creatures. Once we sin, that would be all over. He could have left us to perish in our sin and misery. One of the questions asked that in the catechism, God leave all mankind to perish in their sin and misery. Like the angels, you know, it shows that God can do that. When the angels fell, that was it. There's no redemption for them. There's no promise. There's no law for being restored to God, calling them back to God. They're gone. But we have already seen in the catechism that he did not leave us to perish in our sin and misery. He sent Jesus to be our redeemer. Now he has requirements for us related to that redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we must do what he has said. That brings me to the third thing I want you to see about our duty. Thirdly, I want you to notice that this duty is the duty that God has revealed. You will have to excuse me for saying this, but you are an absolute idiot if you think it is up to you as a fallen sinner to decide how you can come to God. That is utterly foolish. It's detached from all reality. How could you possibly, as a sinner, begin to figure out what is required by God for any sinner to come to him? It's beyond you. You you don't have the moral rectitude for such a thing. It is true that God's law is written on the hearts of of us from creation. He wrote his law on our heart when we made us. We did not really need him to give us the Ten Commandments at that time. I mean we knew that we should not worship other gods, of course not. We worship only the God that made us. And we knew that if God sanctified the fourth day, which he did, then of course we should remember it, keep it holy, that we don't bring a bunch of other stuff on that day that uh, God has given us. And we certainly knew that we were not to murder or steal or and, and that God has had where he had joined. The first man and woman together and declared that the two shall become one flesh and that in the future this shall go on in, uh, in society. We ought not to run around with, with different partners like dogs, like animals. That uh, That's not what God appointed for us. That was all given to us in the beginning. We didn't need to have a list of ten commandments. The ten commandments are all contained in that, additional, in that original revelation. And we still have a moral sense about us, even after the fall. We have a conscience that stings us when we do wrong. But even our conscience is grossly distorted now that we're fallen and are desperately trying to excuse our sin and to minimize it, as we saw this morning. And though we do have some sense of what God requires of us morally still, how could we ever figure out what he requires of us as sinners that we could come to him. How could we figure that part out? We have no mechanism for even thinking that he would receive us as sinners. As I say, he didn't receive the angels. We we're rather left to cry out in despair like the Jews did when, as I mentioned earlier, under Peter's preaching, they realized that they'd crucified the Lord of glory. What shall we do? They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's what Micah is grappling with here in our text. His questions about offering 10,000 rivers of oil or his firstborn for his transgression are not meant to be taken as serious solutions. Of course not. They're questions of desperation. What can I do? Even if I do this, I I can never do enough. He is saying, I'm hopeless. There's nothing I can do that will even make a dent before the Most High God. What could I possibly offer to God that would help? It's the height of stupidity and arrogance for men to start speculating about what will make them right with God as sinners. That's what leads to all kinds of idolatry, where you do offer your firstborn child or something. That's stupid. That's not going to make things right with God. No. If you want to know what God requires, ask Him your own sinful heart will deceive you. Other people will deceive you. False ministers will deceive you. False religions will deceive you. They will put forward crazy ideas that are completely, they're just not helpful. We must find out from God. And the great thing is that God has told us what He requires of sinners. You can see it right here in Micah 6, eight where Micah says, and again, remember who he's writing to, people that the the, the hills and the mountains are testifying against. He has shown you, see, he's revealed it. He has shown you, oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? It's a wonderful thing that God has been pleased to not leave us in the dark, to tell us through his prophets and apostles what he requires. If you understand the importance of this, even just if you understand a little bit how important this is, just an inkling of that understanding, you will be filled with joy and gratitude to know that God has been pleased to show sinners what they are to do. You will cherish his words. You will delight in this instruction. You will want to, imp- you will want to impress what he has shown you upon your children. And you will want to impress it upon your neighbors and the people around you. You won't dream of accepting anyone else's ideas if God himself has told you what is required of you to be reconciled to him. When God has spoken, that trumps everything else. And Micah tells us what he has said. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires a view we're going to be looking at what he has said over the next year or so as we study this last part of the catechism it's going to take us a while first we will look at the moral law which we distort so badly unless we consult his word that's what i was talking about before we have it from creation but we need it to be re- renewed to us we need it to be impressed upon us from god so that will take us from question 40 to question 84. It's a long section because we have so much to learn about basic right and wrong. About how to just live in a basic way of right what's right and what's wrong morally. But then after we have looked at the moral law, we'll look at God what God requires of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin. After having looked at that moral law, we should be quite good and convinced that that we've come short. (laughs) And then the catechism asks that question. Well, what can you do? You see, and this is subject of question 85. How can we escape the wrath and curse of God that comes to us as sinners? And question 85 says, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us, gives to us the benefits of redemption. And you know what those means are, the word, sacraments and prayer. The, the catechism ends with those. It, it talks about re- faith and repentance. And then it talks about those those means of grace that that we connect with with the blessings. Uh, questions 86 through 107 will spell out these requirements. Faith, repentance, the means of grace in detail. So we'll be looking at this, as I say, for the next year or so. But as an introduction today, let's take a look at what Micah spells out for us in Micah 6.8 as a summary of our required duty. There are three things here. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? It's what Micah tells us. Let's look at each of these in order. First, to do justly. That simply means that God calls you to do what is right. Of course you're supposed to do that. It's always a requirement. Everyone knows that. People might be confused sometimes about what's just and right. But we all know at least that we ought to do what is just and right. This is what I spoke about before when I spoke about how we still have that sense of right and wrong. Toward your neighbor. What does it mean? I mean, come on, you know what it means. You know, to do an honest day's work for your clients, for your employer that you work for. Don't cheat them. Do what you've promised. Keep your word. Doing justly. It means that if you're a husband, that you'll provide for your family. And you'll provide for your wife. You'll love her and care for her. As a father, you love your children. You teach them in God's way. You provide for them. You pray for them and with them. And if you're a wife, you'll serve your husband and respect him as the head of your home. You'll pray for him. You'll stand with him. You'll care for the children and love them and be content to do so. And if you're a child, it means that you will pray for your parents and that you'll honor them at all times. You'll obey their lawful commandments. You'll provide for them in their old age. It means that you are to be honest with your neighbor and not to deceive him or lead him astray, that you'll keep your promises to him, that you'll pay your bills on time, that you'll care for his possessions as you care for your own possessions, that you'll pray for him, that you'll give him wise counsel. It means that you will rejoice when things go well for him and that you'll weep when things do not go well for your neighbor. This is doing justly. It means that you will avoid gossip and slander concerning your neighbor. It means that you will keep confidences. But of course, it's not just outward, not not just toward your neighbor that you are to do justly, is it? Who else are we to do what is right before? God requires of us to to do justly toward him as our God and creator. You're to love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. He is your God. And everything about you is due to him. All that you have is his. Your whole life is to be lived for him. You are to celebrate him as your creator and redeemer. It's only right. You are to praise him for his majesty and glory and beauty. You are to give thanks to him for all that he has given to you. You are to declare his glory to others, to talk of his wisdom, his power, his justice, his mercy, his wrath, his goodness. All the rest. And whatever he commands you to do, whatever he forbids, you are to avoid. Whatever he commands you to do, you're to do. Whatever he tells you to avoid, you're to avoid. He is your God. He is your maker. It is unjust for any creature to withhold from God what is due to him. So doing justly is an obligation that obviously belongs to every human being was our obligation when we were created and it is still our obligation now and it will be our obligation for all eternity. But as you all know, we come short of this requirement. As I pointed out to you, God recognizes that and he has provided additional requirements for us in recognition of the fact that we are now fallen sinners. And that especially pertains to the next requirement. What does it say? Secondly, he requires us To love mercy. God has created a situation in the world of fallen sinners where mercy is about us. God has provided mercy. Mercy translates that wonderful Hebrew word hesed that speaks of God's covenant love in the gospel. The ESV translates it steadfast love, which is a helpful translation it speaks of his promise, this word, to forgive sin and to restore us to a right relationship with him. That's why it's called mercy also. Of his promise to do everything that is required to bring us back into a happy, healthy, joyful relationship with him as our God. To do what is required, God himself promises in that, in that mercy, to do what is required to take away our guilt. To atone for our sin, to transform us into the people that we ought to be, to destroy our enemies and to restore paradise and to bring us to glory forever and ever. His mercy is so great. His covenant love is so powerful that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be our redeemer. And he also gives us his Holy Spirit to renew us. The Son of God himself willingly undertook responsibility for all of our sins and he has come in the flesh and paid for our sins on the cross such love is beautiful such love is unfathomable it is deeper than the sea and my dear friends God requires you and it shouldn't be hard to do to love mercy to love this covenant love How can you not love it? Of course you should love it. There is nothing so beautiful in all the world. What praise it ought to draw from your heart to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What joy it ought to stir up in your soul. You are lost. You are headed for a crisis eternity in hell. And now by the gospel that is all turned and you're headed for glory in heaven. What else is like this mercy? Of course, you ought to love it. And by loving it, it is not that you are to stand off and admire it from a distance. Like you do in a museum where you can't can't touch the things. You just look at them and say, oh, isn't that nice? No, you're to come and embrace this mercy. As soon as you hear of Christ and of what he has done, you're to leave all to follow him. Jesus tells us that. I was talking to a man this week that was very desperate and doesn't know the Lord. And and, uh, he said, what does it call for? And I said, everything, everything. You leave all and come to Christ. You are to believe on the Lord Jesus with all your heart. And you're to come to him to have this mercy forever. You are to come believing in him as the son of God and relying on him as he is offered to us in the gospel. It is your duty to believe and you're to so delight in this mercy that you delight in it to others and that you invite them to come and see what God has done. Remember the the woman of Samaria, come see a man that told me all that I ever did. You're to proclaim it to all those around you who do not know of his great mercy toward us. How could they know it if they've not been told? You see, the moral law is something we know, but the mercy, the covenant love of God is something that we do not know unless it is specifically revealed to us. Somebody that's never heard the gospel has no reason to expect it even. You're to say, as Psalm 117 says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Gentiles are people outside of God's people, right? Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples for his merciful kindness, his steadfast love, his hesed is great toward us. We love it. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And of course, you are also in obedience to the Lord Christ to praise him yourself for this mercy. Each Lord's Day, we gather with the saints to hear the gospel preached and to adjoin in the assembly of that praises our God for his mercy because we love his mercy. Psalm 22, 22 through 23 that we looked at recently says, I will declare, Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. What is he talking about? Praising God for receiving his offering for our sins. That's the subject of Psalm 22. And we come each Lord's Day to fulfill that calling to love God's mercy, to come and praise him for it. That's what you're to do, what you will do if you love this mercy. And then having done that, you are as one who loves mercy to show mercy. You are to be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. You are to become an imitator of him. You are to love others as he has loved you. That means loving them whether they deserve it or not. This is beyond justice. This is going beyond that. You are to give yourself for others as he has given himself for you. If Jesus had only done what was just, not one of us would be redeemed. He went beyond that. With mercy and those who love mercy delight in living out mercy. Yes, if you love this mercy, you will live this mercy. This is the love that goes way beyond justice, shown to the undeserving. It forgives those who have wronged you. It harbors no bitterness toward those who have hurt you deeply. It is a mercy that goes out of its way to help and to bless it is a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church and laying down his life for her. You are to love mercy and to embrace mercy and to be full of mercy. All of that is connected really with loving mercy. That's the second thing that the Lord tells us is our duty in Micah 6.8. And then thirdly, Micah says that we're to walk humbly with our God. Do you remember Enoch? That's what was special about Enoch. We're told that Enoch walked with God. We're told that he lived in communion with God as his God. That's what it means to walk with him. He looked to the Lord for grace to live in a crooked and perverted world that was entirely corrupted and that was going to be destroyed by the flood. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He walked with the Lord. He, he depended on the Lord, you see, for life and godliness. He didn't depend on himself. He put, out his, he put his body and soul in the hands of the Lord. When Jesus came into the world, this is exactly what he did and what he called us to do. To follow him, to come after him, to walk with him. He called us his friends and told us that he would explain what he was doing to us. He promised to be with us until the end of the age. He promised to give us grace and peace, fullness of life and peace by his spirit and by his power. Wholeness and completeness. He told us that he would take care of us and that we did not need to fear what man would do to us. That the most they could do is kill us, but only if it is his will for us to honor him by being killed he told us that he was the bread from heaven he was the one who gave living water to those who ask he called us to put ourselves in his hands as one who would redeem us and who would keep us and who would give us eternal life that is walking humbly with your god you're coming to him as the one who is able to redeem you a fallen sinner We have much reason to be humble, do we not? For we are mere creatures. And as we saw in Psalm 22 last week, we can't even keep our soul alive. Even the prosperous, they realize, I can't even keep my soul alive. But much more than that, we are sinful creatures who cannot possibly redeem ourselves, who cannot possibly pay a ransom to atone for our sins, Neither can we renew our sinful hearts and make them good and holy. That's beyond your power. It's beyond your ability. It's way beyond your ability. We're not capable of even governing ourselves, but are to follow Him, walking humbly with Him, relying on Him. Walking humbly is having faith, isn't it? It's turning from your own self and confidence in yourself, repentance, and believing on the Lord and embracing His promises and looking to Him to save you. Don't look at yourself, your own resources, your own strength. You won't find anything there. There's nothing worthwhile. You come to Him. Cast yourself on Him. What excellent requirements these are. Requirements for people ruined by the fall. What does the Lord require of you? People ruined by the fall. What does He require of you? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Who can refuse such requirements? Why would anyone refuse such requirements? The sad truth is with His grace, without His grace, we all refuse this. It doesn't even make any sense. It just shows how, how ruined we are. If, you, if you're keeping these requirements, it's only because God has called you into the fellowship of His Son by His transforming grace to you. He has sent His Spirit to you and shown you your sin. You, you began, you, you saw that. You saw that you need Him. He's to show you Christ and His saving work. You saw what Christ has done and that nothing else can, can do what needs to be done. And then that He works to turn your stubborn heart to receive and rest upon Him alone for your salvation, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All the Spirit does really is put you in your right mind. He opens your mind and heart so that you can see what wonderful requirements these are. So open your eyes and see. Look Look at these requirements. Obey them without delay, with sincerity, with joy and gladness, with zeal with constancy, with thanksgiving. Yes, come to your wonderful Father, to His Son and to His Spirit and live. Look to God and live. That's what your gracious Lord requires of you. You have to be completely blinded by sin and stone-cold-hearted to miss how excellent these requirements are, how amiable they are, how how desirable, how, how suitable, how right they are for us. They are requirements for sinners. Requirements that bring sinners to God and eternal life. Please stand and let's call on the name of our God. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you have revealed to us what is required of us not only as creatures because we would be greatly despairing if you had only revealed to us what is required of us as human creatures it would be terrible because we've come short we've we're ruined we're lost we're undone we'd have no reason to even come to you at all but that you've revealed to us what is required of us as fallen sinners that we're to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that we're to turn from our own way and trust in ourselves and that we're come to come to him that we're to love the mercy that you have revealed we're to live in that mercy we're to bask in it to to hang on to it we're to walk humbly with you we're to look to you to give us the grace and strength that we need we can't walk on our own we can't do these things ourselves father our eyes are on you we're dependent upon you thank you that you have made yourself available to us in this way that you have revealed yourself as a god of mercy and of salvation and we pray lord that we would delight to obey these things that it would be our joy and that you would give us an assurance of hope and comfort as we do Father, it's not some great work that we're called to do. It's simply a leaning work, a leaning upon you, a a falling upon you. We don't have to climb up. We just have to fall into your care. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to to find the, the joy and the goodness and the wholesomeness of these things that you have appointed us, to find the salvation and that we would praise you for it. Is our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. Amen.